Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. In the not-for-profit sector and in some social enterprise too, how do you measure the intangibles that our sector delivers as an impact measurement, you know? Um, And that's becoming more and more true, that science is actually starting to measure the change in brain activity when someone experiences compassion, empathy, kindness. And if that can be measured then it can be valued. Yes. So I think there's a whole piece around actually the measurement of the intangibles that our sector is so big on. Great to be back with you here, as always. Just some brief housekeeping before we kick off today. Firstly, I'm excited to open our Humans of Purpose Experience Survey, acronym HOPES, for 2022. Who doesn't love a good acronym? This is our annual podcast survey that gets slightly improved each year and enables us to get your feedback and use that to improve the podcast. Of course, there are prizes each year and this year is no different in year 2022 with two of the first 20 survey respondents having the opportunity to appear as a guest on the podcast representing themselves and or their organization. They'll receive a coaching session prior to the podcast with me to enable a great performance and outcome too. This is something that we generally offer as part of our promotional packages and is valued at around $1,000 per podcast opportunity. You can learn more about these under promotional packages in our show notes. So please lend me five minutes of your time to complete the survey. It is open as of the release of this podcast today, and all you need to do is hit the link under survey in our show notes. The survey closes on Friday 23rd of September at 5 p.m. I was recently made aware by some friends of a Humans of Purpose WhatsApp group that has been subject to some very off-putting content and material from unauthorized spammers. I'm not personally in that group myself and actually tried to shut it down when it started to be infiltrated by these unwanted spammers. Just so you're aware, this is not the official or endorsed Humans of Purpose WhatsApp group. And although this is something we did trial earlier in the year, it is not supported by myself or the podcast. And if you're in that group, I would suggest that you report and leave the group as soon as possible as I have. We are exploring a chat forum of sorts for our members, but it will certainly not be on this platform. Before we introduce our guest today, just a um, quick apology about our recording. Um, Karen today proposed that we do something a bit different and do a acknowledgement of country at the beginning of the episode. I accidentally referred to this as a welcome to country, which is incorrect in the context. So I'm well aware that this was a mistake. I know the difference between the two, but it was 5 p.m. and we were both very tired. So I can only apologize for that error, as you'll note in the audio um, in the podcast today. So without further ado, I'm thrilled this week to welcome Karen Marlab to the podcast. Karen is the founder and CEO of Pro Bono Australia. Since 2000, Pro Bono Australia has shared news, careers and resources to help purpose-driven people and organizations grow their impact. With over 1.5 million people using their site each year, there's no question that Pro Bono News is the number one news outlet for Australia's social economy. In full disclosure, I love Pro Bono Australia and used to be a monthly contributing writer for them. They do incredible work and they're really one of a kind in terms of what they do and how they support the social and for-purpose sector in Australia. 
I also have great respect and admiration for what Karen has built over the years and continues to grow alongside a range of her other projects, which are all around advancing journalism, news media, and boosting Australia's social economy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Karen as much as I did. So I'm really thrilled to uh, welcome a bit of um, an icon for me in the industry, Karen Marlow, to the podcast. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Mike. And I'd also like you to um, to proceed with a welcome to country if you'd like. Yeah, I would. It's um, an issue, this whole um, discussion about the place of our Indigenous people is really important in my mind. So I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose country we sit at the moment and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emergent. I think it's lovely that you did that and I'd like to correct myself. I said a welcome to country. I should have said acknowledgement of country. Yeah. Um, so thank you for doing that because that's really something that we should have always been doing um, mm. and 250-something episodes <laughs> in, you're the first one to mention it. So thanks, Karen. It's lovely. Go Kaz. <laughs> Go Kaz, exactly. <laughs> I have so much to ask you about. I'm really keen to get in a number of things but I think a good way to kick off would be to just learn a bit about your story, um, mm. how you came to to be in publishing and media. Mm. Um, I'd like to get into pro bono and PS media. But first, just a bit about you and how you found yourself in the space. Yeah, well, it's I, I've got a bit of a kind of retrospective look of how I came into the space because I actually came through the corporate sector. Um, I did marketing and economics at university and my first jobs were in two big multinationals and I was a complete unfit in those organisations. But interestingly enough, in Ogilvie and Mather, which was a big advertising agency that I worked in in the 80s, imagine that, um, I loved most of all the pro bono clients that we had in the agency and had that realisation later after I'd started Pro Bono Australia, which was probably 10 or 15 years after that point in time. So Pro Bono Australia came um, into existence when I had been working in publishing. I had my own publishing company, which was diaries and directories for different um, professions. And my kids were young at the time and I was exhausted and recognised that I actually needed to lie flat on my back for three months um, which isn't easy with young kids, which didn't actually happen. I'm amazed you know. that that could happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose it's, a it's wish more at of your a stage. Than, <laughs> than anything else. I'm sure you were doing nothing, but go on. <laughs> and to dream. And I had been asked at that point of time um, to write a, um, a speech on balance. And so I used that time because I was always nervous about making speeches um, to really read and think about that question in my life. And so I read a number of books and one of those books was Anita Roddick's Body and Soul. She was the founder of The Body Shop and she was really the first one in my mind that had that purpose-led 
um, business framework and she just really inspired me and the internet was just starting at that time, believe it or not. I remember um, being a young man um, trying to play around with what was the pre-internet. It was pretty good times. Pretty good times and, in fact, in my publishing business we did one of the first websites in Australia. Wow. Yeah, we had um, and I used it for commercial purposes and we had three orders. One was from Germany and I hadn't factored in any postage. <laughs> one person refused to give their credit card details. <laughs> and at that point I decided that as a small business the it was better to be a technology lagger rather than a leader. Yes. Um, Doing credit card transactions at the dawn of the internet. Yeah. My, well, my word, wow. Yeah, yeah. We were on te- um, on television on a program called Hot Chips and, oh, you know, wow. we were kind of really leaders in the space. Anyway, back to the three months on my back and um, I started, uh, I read that book, The E-Myth, which had this chapter in it about lying in a coffin, draped in gold, all those people that you love standing around you. What would you want them to be saying about you? Wonderful. And out of that um, came the thought that I wanted to work for purpose, that I wanted to work for community, and I set up Pro Bono Australia. Mm. So Pro Bono, the term Pro Bono in Latin means for good Mm. and it comes from the term Pro Bono Publico, which means for the common good. And that, in fact, is what we've become. That's that's such an interesting take. I mean, I suppose... What resonates with me about what you said is that sort of notion of legacy thinking or tombstone thinking. Mm-hmm. So, sort of mm-hmm. thinking back, what would the um, what would the sermon sound like? Um, yeah, you know, when you pass to that next life, it's very defining. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you think people would do things differently if they thought that way? Generally, well, I think understanding that we're going to die is a great philosophical place to live. Mm actually. Mm. Um, I don't think I've still fully grasped that, but certainly at that time, that conversation in my head about the legacy conversation, as you say, was really formative. Mm. It's very interesting how that legacy thinking often leads to a, like a clarify, clarification of purpose that can really mm. push us forward in a, the direction that we want to go. Yeah. So that was that was kind of a combination of new technology starting up. I mean, in those days, there was no Google, there was no Facebook, there was no emails. AltaVista? Just yeah, maybe. And what was the other one? I can't remember. Those uh, AltaVista. Remember Windows uh, Explorer one point yeah. Netscape Navigator. That was good. Nineteen ninety nine. Oh yeah. Oh yep. my goodness. Yep. You don't look old enough to remember that. Well, my dad was a very early adopter, and right. uh, we had Gopher Proxy, and we we're playing around with like text-based internet at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, amazing. Taught, he was teaching me how to install computer games using these big floppy disks and I've probably lost half the audience now so I'll stop. But <laughs> <laughs> isn't it funny when we wind back the clock? Well, I, I think that that's why I felt as though um, an organisation like Pro Bono Australia could hold the space for the emergence of what was to come. And that's in fact 20 years later what we've done with a couple of million people using our services. Yeah. And we've morphed from being because the whole of what I call the social economy has emerged. And I have to say I think I think we've had 
quite a lot to do with giving it a voice, yes. Pro Bono Australia. Oh, certainly. <laughs> and, I mean, giving people a window into that world as well, the thought leadership, the um, the conversation, the happenings of the sector. I remarked to you before we started my kind of my affirmation, as you called it, but it was really just me speaking my truth, um, that... Yeah, I mean, I don't know how anyone would know what's happening in the for-purpose sector um, if not for Pro Bono Australia, Pro Bono News. Mm, so, well, um, that warms the cockles of my heart because it's it's um, that was the intention yeah. 20 years ago to give a voice, to give it a, sh- a shape, to um, give the players, the brilliant, like, um, people that work in it, um, people working visibility. For the, for the common good. And, I mean, it, yeah. it's interesting that even the um, the language for purpose is sort of, you know, a lot of people would say, well, does that comprise, are you talking about the not-for-profit sector? Yeah. Who are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, I call really, it, it's, it's a term that um, we use called the social economy because I think that embraces it for us. There are six pillars to that. Um, and I'm sure there will be more emerging, but um, that's uh, volunteering, philanthropy, corporate social responsibility, social enterprise, and obviously not-for-profits and charity, mm. and I always forget Be corporal, profit for the purpose. Social enterprise, yep. yeah. Yep. Um, and so we, Pro Bono Australia, speaks to all six of those sectors. Yeah. And we write on them purposefully. So with each of those segments, we give each of it voice because each of them is emergent. Obviously, things like philanthropy have a much older framework, um, but they are also – philanthropy and giving is also developed astonishingly over the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And the scene here is just incredible, I think, in Australia, how much is happening. And, I mean, you must mobilise not just a voice to people but to movements and sort of um, giving voice to change. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I wish that I existed now because then I would have a community. When we started – when I started Pro Bono Australia – um, there was no one like – I felt like I was talking gibberish when I was explaining to people that I actually wanted to start an organisation yes. that what had a had a mission, had a purpose. Yeah, um, because you were really in, early. Sitting in the business sector you're because really we're early. not a not-for-profit. Um, we're B Corp yep. um, and we were really early. Yeah. You were so early to the party. I mean, mm. I, even I, could, I remember um, – starting my business Purposeful and Humans and Purpose in 2016 and I thought I was early to the party but you were there in the 80s knocking about uh, <laughs> ready to take it all on. So it's just amazing the strides that you've reached. Is the reporting style different being a sort of values-driven organisation? Um. That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. We're finding more and more to write on. So, um, but yes, yeah, our mandate is constructive journalism. And it's interesting because there's a movement in the United States that's happened called solutions journalism. So it's about people reading your articles and not just having it um, uh, go nowhere 
uh, apart from the thinking. It's about the doing so that it's not necessarily, it's being critical but it's not necessarily tearing down. It's saying what's coming um, and it's allowing people a pathway to then get engaged in what they've read, which is what I find so powerful about what we do. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I do notice is that um, as distinct maybe from conventional news media, um, there's not the sort of sensationalism or clickbait angle. Mm, Yeah. It's a bit cleaner. Yeah. It's a bit more like, hey, this is happening. Yeah. You might find this interesting. Yeah. And I think um, we're becoming more and more recognised as a media organisation. And, in fact, that's been a kind of real shift over 20 years because we really started as this hub for the for the emergence of um, philanthropy and how to run not-for-profits and make them more effective and all of these other conversations have come in over that 20 years. And what we're finding is that the ecosystem that sits around the for-purpose sector now is just filled with incredible organisations that we now report on. So over time we've become less of a hub and more of a media organisation yep. giving more voice to the, those issues. So in the past we might have done huge sector surveys to say what were the concerns of the sector and how things should be and other people are now doing that, academic institutions, different organisations, just a huge range of different organisations. So um, we over time have become a bigger and bigger media organisation that represents those interests and over the last couple of years we've got much more active in the traditional media space. Mm. So we've become members of the Australian Press Council. Mm. We're an accredited media um, public interest journalism organisation by ACMA and um, I've become kind of more um, activist in the media space. Well, you guys play a significant role in really, I guess, shaping um, people's education, attitudes, the way they approach issues of the sector and beyond. So I'm not surprised to hear that actually. Yeah. Well, it'll, it's interesting um, as we start to move into being recognised as a media organisation like by people um, like the New Daily who yep. are sitting in this building and other more um, traditional media mm. organisations mm. um, where we sit and having people understand that this for-purpose mm. sector is a, is, an, is a thing. It's a thing. And that one in, what is it, 10 Australians work in a not-for-profit yes. yeah, organisation, right. that there's actually this is a massive Huge. audience, a massive, yeah. I mean, I tried to do the numbers. Uh, we, we, we tried to do the numbers recently at Info Exchange and I think that was because it's so debatable like ACNC registered versus not and then you factor yeah. in how many social enterprises are there. It's a whole different story but yeah. the bottom line is hundreds of thousands of organisations. Yeah. Well, they say 600,000 community organisations. Yeah. I think the ACNC have about 55,000 registered tra- charities. Yeah. And yeah. social enterprises, they say, best figure I've got is about 20,000, but depends who you ask. That figure's been around a long time and yeah. I wonder about how that's defined. Well, you are, my uh, my boss also disagrees with that figure. So yeah. <laughs> we yeah. think maybe closer to 10,000 or something like yeah. that is probably better estimation. But Well, it depends whether you actually, like I mean, thinking about this a bit, at media organisations, um, a lot of them are the, for the common good. So does yes. that make most, it, does that make, make media as a category a social enterprise? Um, maybe. I, I guess it depends on what the motives behind the organisation are or the purpose, mm-hmm. uh, which actually leads me to my question, mm-hmm. which is um, when you 
we're doing what you're doing. I think you explained really well the, the story arc, but for you, what were your, what was your purpose? What were you trying to achieve? Were you trying to just create a kind of space for the conversation yep. around the social economy? Yeah, I was. And um, I come at things from a very felt sense, like there become, it becomes obvious to me at various times what needs to be done. You're intuitive. Various, I'm very intuitive. Um and uh, as an intuitive, sometimes the thinking about what needs to be done takes a while to emerge mm-hmm. and the language around it isn't necessarily there yet. Yep. Um, but that's what I've done numbers of times. So when something feels like it needs to be done, um, I kick into gear. And, and at that point when I kick into gear then there's, a huge amount of energy behind it. So mm. that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and so has that purpose evolved over time or had to change? Have there been certain things that have yeah. arisen internally or externally where you've said, okay, hold on, um, what is our role here and how should we change ourselves to address that? Well, what I'm um, not so, yes, not so much with Pro Bono Australia. That's been a gradual evolution. But what I've done and is started a whole lot of other organisations on the side. So, for example, my journey um, with Pro Bono Australia was that I decided to take a step out. Um, I wanted to do a whole lot of stuff around my yoga practice, actually, and I put in a CEO and it failed um, really badly after 22 months. I thought the organisation was going to disappear. Oh, man. Oh, man. It was... was, um, That's got to be stressful. It was probably the most stressful thing um, that I've ever encountered. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, Mm. um, what happened was that the CEO didn't show up for work on Monday and one of my closest friends had died of cancer on Saturday. But Saturday before. Wow. And so um, the whole thing happened at once and somehow her death gave air on my wings to keep going with Pro Bono Australia. So there was like a month of disaster work with reshaping, calling, planning of how we were going to survive. And her, she was like with me along the road and so I stepped back into the CEO role. And during that time I kind of thought about what would happen if Pro Bono Australia disappeared and some of the things that you were talking about like really came home to roost. It was like actually if we disappear the voice of the sector, the media voice of the sector and the voice of the sector in other ways because we do surveys and initiatives would disappear. I should um, so, shout out my mate Wendy Williams at this point, who I believe is on mat leave. She's uh, just had a baby. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, she was the person who I first got introduced to at Pro Bono. Yeah. So uh, for the audience who may not know this, I'll cover it in the intro, but um, I've been lucky enough to be reading and engaging with Pro Bono since I joined this sector about eight years ago. Uh, during that time, I've periodically written for Pro Bono on a range of um, mm. topics and I just think, you know, um, it's an incredible um place that and there's no place like it i mean if if you want to go online and you want to learn about what's happening in the sector um you're spot on i mean where else would you go Mm. um so the idea of not having that um sometimes i guess we have to think what would it be like if not for 
So thanks, Mike, and mm. thanks for your work for us over that time. I, I, what, what it kicked me into was um, a bigger picture around media, which was, well, I, I know if we disappear, a whole voice of a would disappear. But in actual fact, when you look at what's happening with media organisations around the globe over the last 10 years, since the platforms have arisen, has been decimation. Yes. So I kind of then went to thinking about the general issue of media um, and voices disappearing because what's happened for people who um, don't understand the business model around media is the old newspapers that we used to get used to have classified sections in the back. Yeah, I love them. Love them. So the travel section. I used to like the trading post, remember that? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, travel sections, car sections, career sections. A lot of pages. A lot of pages and all of that was classified advertising and that went to seat.com, carsales.com. Yep. So the internet came along and stripped out traditional media's rivers of gold, they used to call it. Yep. And the rivers of gold, those advertising at the back of the papers used to pay for all the journalists at the front. Yeah, yep. Which meant that media organisations can't afford to employ as many journalists as they used to. You've got to run real lean now. You've got to run real lean now. And that's and why our papers are approximately like, what, an eighth of the size that they used to be? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And all the journalists that used to write in the papers have gone on to being in media and comms. So they've flipped over to the corporate side. So who is doing that um, public interest journalism at arm's yeah. length? Yeah. So... Um, I and a few other people um, started the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, which is about bringing a focus to public interest journalism in Australia um, and educating the public about what was actually happening to the business model and informing government and lobbying to get um, funds into um, media organisations. So that's now headed by um, the wonderful Anna Draffin and chaired by Alan Fells, who many of you might know mm. um, from starting the ACCC actually. Yeah. So that's where I went to out of the disaster of Pro Bono Australia. Mm. My head went, well, a voice, voices are disappearing and we need to fix that. So I mean, it's just devastating to hear, I think it I don't know when it started, but even a few years ago, just memories of hearing The Age cutting, you know, a huge number of their staff, the Herald Sun, yeah. the Australians, slashing their newsrooms yeah. and TV was doing the same. Yeah. And it yeah. just it just got to a point where I think it got horrible and it got even nastier because you just, you, you went from like a rich, lovely, I used to spend the weekend opening the paper mm. and just enjoying sifting through the paper, right? Mm. Now I could... If, if, like sometimes when the paper is in my garden on a Sunday, I still get this, the weekend papers, mm-hmm. I can't find it because it's so small. Yeah. It could be just right. next to a plant and I, I miss it. Yeah. And I sort of come to realise that maybe a lot of this is just the ad, the advertising or advertorial yep. model of news has really left us with like a, a dearth of good quality opinion and kind of analysis. And it's actually, I'd go so far as to saying it's it's dangerous for our democracy yeah. because the rounds that used to be done like courts. Mm. Um, people on the beat, you know. Yeah, people on the beat mm. with specific beats so yep. that they know in depth an Court area. Court reporters, C- crime, you yep. know, poverty. And 
Um, the other area that is absolutely chronic now is local journalism. Yeah. Yep. And I don't, you know, local media was never terrific, mm. um, but now one third of local councils aren't covered by a journalist at all. Yeah. yeah. So there's a whole, um, there's a whole piece around ju- local journalism, which is another area that I've become involved with, with a uh, PS Media. Yeah, mm. I mean, we'll, we'll, we should talk about that as well, mm-hmm. of course. Um, so why don't we do that now, actually, now that, <laughs> now that you brought it up. Tell us a bit about PS Media. So PS Media is a, um, is a uh, why am I hesitating? It, because it's such a big idea. It's, it's, I've, I've got three partners, um, one of whom's Rob's father bought Body Shop to Australia, so it's a strange circle of um, uh, engagement. Um, Margaret Simons, who is a well-known academic journalist, um, Simon Creera, who started BuzzFeed in Australia and was yep. general manager. So they're a terrific gang of, we're a gang of four and over the past two, two and a half years we've been developing this concept around local journalism in Australia. And Rob is a tech guy so we're building a tech platform. We've got three pilots that have just started over the last few months. How employing journalists. And yes. you've got some serious backers and partners behind you, I see. Well, never enough, yep. let me say. But um, a great start nonetheless. A great start. We've got some Scanlon Foundation. We've, we've managed to develop this model which is both philanthropic and equity. Um, so we've got grants from the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and Scanlon to do Brimbank and Logan journalism. Fantastic. We've already made through our stories there a huge difference to people's lives around climate change and housing. Um, and we're in Port Phillip as well, which is St Kilda in Melbourne. This is um, quite magnificent. You're kind of rebuilding local news in a way. We are. The model is the model is different. We want a thousand people in a community to put out their hand and say they'll support us and we'll put a journalist there. So oh, it's, wow. And those 1,000 people will become co-owners at a local level of PS Media. Mm. And once it's profitable, those profits will be distributed back down into community. It's a little bit like the Bendigo Bank model for banking. So embedding uh, through um, co-ownership in a community. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, there's a number of other revenue sources too. So it's a it's, dynamic model. It's a really dynamic model. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, highly innovative and to get philanthropy playing in that space. That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that, uh... We're going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Of um, public interest journalism is also really um, yeah. an accomplishment. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Well, the Scanlon Foundation's been there a little while. They realised yes, they, they realised yeah. particularly. Um, when COVID started, the shutdown of the high rise in Melbourne's west, how important journalism was mm. um, to telling people's stories. So yeah. they, well, COVID, they've been terrific. COVID mm. must have changed a lot. I mean, in the lockdowns, it was quite hard to get information. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Although, and, and in fact, with pro bono news, we had a 400% lift in our readers. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah over people, that time. People, 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 desperate for, people were just desperate for yeah. information. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a time, I think, when everyone was sort of trapped indoors here in Melbourne where um, the premium on news was just extraordinarily yeah. valuable news and media. But it does sort of play into this, um, I guess, this disjunct where people at times really value news and media, but at the same time trust in news and media has gone down a lot over the years. Mm. Why do people not trust media? Well, I think because it's not as trustworthy as it once was mm. um, because the um, sources are questionable and the the writers are, you know, going back to what we were saying before. Yeah. Um, the people working on the beats aren't as experienced. There aren't enough of them. They're getting their pe- press releases and writing on press releases rather than original journalism because yep. they're just – they've got a 24-7 media cycle and there just isn't enough hours in the day um, to be writing your own copy yep. all the time. So it's gradually eroded the the trust in um, media and where um, you've got platforms like Facebook um, where there's, you know... Trash. Trash and a lot of information and dis- information but a big swag of disinformation. But, how, I mean, is it our job to kind of combat that? I mean, because in a way people are increasingly sort of binging on the junk food of news media, which is your um, TikTok and your, your Facebook and your mm. Instagram reels and mm. all this stuff because people's attention spans are constantly going down. So is it our job to bring them back to a place of authentic, good journalism and media? Yes, good. of course. Good, good. <laughs> so I'm glad we agree on that. Um, <laughs> excellent. And people's attention spans too. I mean, I think, you know, you, you, you your babes... Not reading yet. No, I would presume so. But I talk to him a lot. He he, <laughs> he says uh, "agur" is his main noise, and he goes "ah." Those are his two sounds at the moment. But ten weeks. Ten weeks. Probably get better. I love those mouthy sounds. Yeah, he's divine. Um, but we have been told that we should start reading to him because they mm. apparently are absorbing everything. Mm. Um, so mm. I. Well, with kids, when you work out how much they're actually doing on the physical and the mental plane, yeah. they are little magic, magic mushrooms. But Karen, my concern is that when Marlo grows up, given the fast decline of people's attention span to sit down and read a paper, which doesn't really happen for most people now, maybe they'll flip. Very, I don't even know how many people I know would have active news site subscriptions anymore. Um, mm. To give you an indication of how far it's fallen. Um, people are busier and busier. Maybe they pay less attention to this stuff. Mm. What will it be like in ten or twelve years when Marlo grows up? Will he be getting his news from Instagram Reels, where they're three second clips and it's just kind of a burst of random pictures and words? Like, mm. I have serious concerns about um, what do we do to reengage people in quality. Um, lengthy, well-written and dedicating the time to learning that's an immersive process rather mm. than a transient one. Mm. And, and how do we um, stop our brains from needing to 
the dopamine that yes. we get from reading messages about us or for yes. us or needing to refer to your phone or yes. needing to know what the latest email is or mm-hmm. what the latest how do we stop being so fast on that news cycle yeah it's it's um it's going to be training it's going to be actually training our brain so you know the at uh, the um the bursting up of contemplative practices like meditation, like yoga, mm. um, is part of that coming back. It's like to, a reawakening sort of. And so many people are doing that, right? Are we at a moment where we're, we're sort of part of the way that we're dealing with the difficulty of the now and the past few years is to go back inside ourselves more? Yeah. I think so. And going back into nature. Mm. I mean, you know, there's the most incredible programs on television about nature, but having been locked down, I mean, we're in Melbourne um, for 200 and however many days it was, my local trees became very important to me. I found pathways in my neighbourhood that I never knew that existed. Mm. My connection to country actually became much more solid and I gained great solace from the little creeks um, that I came across or the trees that I hugged every so often. Yeah, so I like to think sometimes about things like um, Meta and, you know, these virtual online communities and I just am terrified Mm. Um, and I think to myself, you know, there's NFTs, crypto, you know, all this online stuff. And it's, yes, it's interesting conceptually and you can play there for a bit and it's mm. a nice sandbox, but why would you not just engage more with reality? Because mm. uh, reality is pretty awesome. And it's pretty hard yeah, too. And, and a lot of us, I mean, the beauty of being human is that we can work through how we're feeling and how we're thinking, mm. um, but there's a lot of trauma around. So I think... Um, working through that is going to be one of the biggest agendas that we've got going forward. Let's just pull that apart a bit. I mean, what do you mean when you talk about the trauma we've all been facing? Well, I think everyone in their lives has had trauma of something Mm. and some of us have been less fortunate and have more trauma. So in the not-for-profit sector space um, and in lots of spaces, there's even in the journalism space, there's trauma-informed journalism. So how do you write on homelessness when you don't know what it's like to be homeless? So having an understanding of the trauma that homeless people have experienced when you're writing on the issue. Mm. So we know now that we've got trigger warnings, for example. Um, We know that the stolen generation have got intergenerational now trauma that passes down. I come from a Jewish background Mm. and the intergenerational trauma from the Holocaust I deeply understand. So everyone has to understand the... um, what trauma they've experienced and through doing that they can be empathetic to others. Yeah, I love that. Um, I have a real kind of um, opinion on this Mm. and I think that's with enough empathy and understanding we can learn to write um, or learn and convey the experiences that others might have had that we haven't had. And that's part of journalism too because not every journalist can be somebody who's experienced that direct trauma. Mm. But I've spoken to other people and I think it could be um, 
something that's sort of come out of um, maybe the extreme left where it sort of says if you that's not your identity, how dare you talk about it? Mm. And for me that's a pretty dangerous concept. Mm. But there's the, the concept of walking alongside. Yes. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily appropriate. No. And sometimes it is a fine line and we are learning. Yes. So Absolutely. So that's that's the I think the um cancel culture is really tough. Yes. And so how do people learn and walk alongside and ask the right questions and have this the um kindness towards them? Um to say you're just on your journey, you don't know what you're talking about yet. Yeah, um, and, and also just like, you know, um, I'm glad you sort of raised cancel culture because I think part of it is um, cancel culture engenders um, fear rather than an uh, authentic desire to explore one's ideas. Mm. So if I am um, so concerned that I'll say something offensive or wrong to someone or with someone in a publication or a conversation, uh, I will just avoid it and then I won't get to learn. Mm. Uh, whereas if I'm encouraged to sort of, you know, feel safe, that mm. I can make a mistake and I, I can, you know, mm. say things, mm. maybe that will result in uh, a learning for both of us and everyone who's listening. But there has to be the willingness on your part mm. um, to learn as much as you can before you make those comments. Yes, of course. So there has to be an openness, not a... Um, a hubris. A hubris, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I try not to have too much um, pride in anything I do. I often remark that I'm probably the dumbest person in the room at any given time, so yeah, that's a helpful concept for me. <laughs> Always happy to learn from others. But, but for example, Karen, I mean, you know, for me in my background, um, I had not spent much time with Aboriginal people mm. um, and I deeply regret that. Um, it's just because you know, being sort of growing up in a um, middle-class household in the southeastern suburbs, there's not a lot of opportunity. Mm. Mm. And actually just through this podcast, the the different types of people I've been able to meet and have long conversations with mm. has just taught me so much um, and enriched my life greatly. Um, and I think, you know, I wish the same for everyone else Yeah, in a way. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Mm. It is about the conversation, right? Yeah, and I mean it's about having um, having conversations and I think really when we look at media today, um, it's kind of <laughs> I really do get the sense that pieces run just to get reactions. Yeah, yeah. And and um, this is something I actually heard um, a guy called Pico Aya said, we need conversations at the moment that are beyond the moment. Oh, well, that's deep. We need conversations that are beyond the moment. Mm. Um, and it's going back to that 24-7 news cycle, usually it's bad, but we need to be having those still conversations where we've got the time to unpack. I just want out. to dovetail back quickly to what you said about trauma because I find that really interesting. So obviously the for-purpose sector has suffered a lot in the past few years, Um funding cuts, um, lack of support from various funders, government cuts and whatnot, and uh, the pressures of COVID, um, JobKeeper and everything, that's been its own trauma. But for the sector, sort of around all of that trauma has been the trauma for the 
10% of people who work in the not-for-profit sector who are also experiencing COVID and their own um, maybe um, overlapping concerns, mental health and, and whatnot, but then also having a really tough time in the job market and working in the sector too. How does that sort of resonate with you and how, how do you sort of think that we – are we processing that? Are we still in that? What's the continuum like mm, of that journey? Mm. Well, the conversations seem to be um, happening more and more. How do we care for the carers? Yes. How do we care for the teachers? Yeah. Um, and, you know, COVID obviously brought those caring professions to the fore mm. when we'd really over, overlooked them before. Yes. I don't know the answer to that except to give them better pay, um, give them better training, more people in it, which is hardly, it's hard to make happen. Um, it starts with how we value them though, doesn't it? So sort of like... It does. We, we have and to have these moments of realising yeah, yeah. where would we well, be. And, and it's something I've always thought about. Um, it's how do you measure kindness and empathy? Because a lot of our sector is about in, um, intangible outcomes. So, you know, we've had this whole impact investing movement um, uh, in the not-for-profit sector and in some social enterprise too. How do you measure the intangibles that our sector delivers? Um, and Impact measurement. As an impact measurement, yeah. you know. Um, and that's becoming more and more true that science is actually starting to measure the change in brain activity when someone experiences compassion, empathy, kindness. And if that can be measured, then it can be valued. Yes. So I think there's a whole piece around actually the measurement of the intangibles that our sector is so big on. Um, connection, well, community. I, I love what you're talking about. Measuring intangibles is a lot of the reason where I am where I am today. Um, you know, How? I, I um, when I worked in the Department of Health for a little while, it's a couple of years, I just became obsessed with a lack of um, good evaluation practices mm-hmm. of social programs and sort of just was bit befuddled by how are they deciding whether to fund things or not fund things. And it's evolved a lot since then, I believe. But I started to think to myself, you know, how do you measure things that are very hard to measure? And that's very exciting because that's yep. where the real substance is. That's And, and, and um, if science comes along with that, yep. then the whole notion of well-being um, becomes measurable. Yeah, and, and my, my family um, teases me a lot because I went to Bhutan in 2016 and spent um, two weeks there and um, that's a place worth going to. So that's the Institute of Happiness, right? Yeah. Did you yeah, go there? Yeah. Yeah. Global National Happiness Institute, um, yeah. GNH. It's really quite interesting. Every um, project in Bhutan that um, passes the the government's sort of test has to pass like a wellbeing and community uh, benefit test. Mm, mm. So no development happens unless it's actually better mm, for the community and, mm, net, and net positive. Mm-hmm. It's the only... Um, carbon negative uh, country in the world, mm. which is interesting because mm. they have 70% forestation. Mm. Um, it's got its problems yeah. like every country. Yep. Um, but it really was a great insight for me on what would it be like if we sort of focused a lot more on wellbeing. Yep. The sector is, and I think leaders um, or the C-suite or team leaders, 
there's just a real issue at the moment about um, burnout. Oh, yes. It's everywhere. So it's really how do we deal with that? And um, I heard someone, um, Belinda, comment the other day, well, I think, you know, we should just say thank you a lot more to really, like, from your heart, um, kindness. And you know um, that you change your humour, you know. You know that you change. You feel a lot better, a lot less stressed when those types of things are delivered to you during your day and in your workplace. It doesn't really counteract the burnout completely, um, but it becomes a lot less stressful. Yeah, I totally agree. I think things like saying thank you um, don't happen enough and Mm. some of the things that we really ought to do more that are free to do, Mm. you don't have to pay money to Mm. express gratitude Mm. or thanks Mm. to someone. Mm. Uh, You don't have to pay to appreciate someone Mm. or a team. it's just words um, that come from the heart mm. and that can sometimes really lift people above their station. Mm. Mm. So I think that's really important. Um, and, yes, I, I do think burnout's a huge issue. I, I think the mental health thing's fascinating because I think we saw COVID and at first we were all dealing with the physical constraints of COVID and what it meant in a day-to-day practice. But then we started to say, oh, okay, now finally we're starting to see that being confined in a small space and not having social connection and being socially isolated is going to lead to mental health problems. And it's sort of, I feel like it did a lot quicker than it was reported Um, and I still feel that there's been a huge reporting lag that exists to this day around the difficulty that the community has faced Mm. as a result of um, what's happened here with the lockdowns, with COVID generally, um, and it's just not discussed enough. No, we're still in the middle of it, Mike. You're right. I have to say. Yeah. It's just we're not there yet. You're right. And, you know, I said to you before we started, um, you know, during COVID, like we're not in COVID anymore, but we are definitely still in COVID. Mm. Um, It's just we are taking a different approach as a society um, you know, time will tell for better or for worse. But I was quite um, interested to hear these, there's a uh, report that came out around mental health and people's experiences during the pandemic and mm. something like um, a significant number of people had episodes of anxiety or depression of up to a year during the, I think, a fifth of people or something around yeah. that. Not surprising, but I, I think... You know, we are coming out of it to the extent that people are meeting up. Yes, um, and that's that's really important. It is really important. I didn't, I didn't kind of like. I was going, okay, I'm okay, and then I feel like I've become a little bit phobic about mm. going out mm. to events, and I need to look at that. But when I do, it's oh my god. Well, I didn't realise how good this was, actually. Yep. Um, But I think we're also starting to look back at what could happen. I mean, during that time, those early days, we had some massively exciting things happen. We had that national cabinet. We could see how quickly government could act um, for the common good. Um, which was so um, such a relief to so many business owners, to so many everyone. It was a relief. Um, we saw how important connections were to us um, and the community that sits around us, both our social community and our local community. Um, so there were really a, a few realizations 
that happened during COVID that when we look back, we go, okay, well, what do we do with that now? How can we keep that going, yeah. that willingness, that those connections, that um, understanding of what we're missing and making sure we don't miss it anymore? Yeah, and I think some of the things that you mentioned before are particularly um, cogent here. So, so things like looking inside a bit more um, awareness and general discussion of mental health and the mm. fact that everyone has mental health of mm. some kind mm. uh, on a scale uh, of sorts. And then things like... When you're stripped of everything, um, the few things you can do become really important, like mm. that time to just catch up with a friend for a walk, yep. go to your local creek or your yep. um, or your park, have yep. a walk, um, get into nature. Mm-hmm. So the things like nature, mindfulness, meditation, exercise for those brief periods, having a coffee and being outside um, and getting in the sun for a little bit if you can, sort of just became really interesting reminders of the simplicity of what it takes to be contented. Exactly. And mm. like where your joy is. Joy comes from small things. I agree. And you can just activate it yeah. quickly, you know, think about it, activate it. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of makes me wonder about how meaningful and important yoga has been for you in your life. Mm. Well, it's been a, well, for me, a 20 or 30-year journey really. Um, and I kind of, I could rave on about it because for me it's like a whole world like medicine. So yoga um, obviously is 5,000 years old and there are many different aspects to yoga. The West usually sees the movements, the asanas, as yoga, whereas it's a much more complex system that involves breath work and chant and um, meditation and um, that whole um, philosophical um, history and understanding and Ayurvedic medicine isn't part of yoga but it's part of that Vedic tradition. So I've done a lot of um, learning and it's like this endless path because it's connected to body, spirit, mind. Um, so I found it incredibly interesting over a long period of time and I've I've managed to be able to get myself um, not on holiday to Bali but to study in Bali. So Fantastic. I've got a couple of teachers over there. So before COVID, um, for about a decade, I was going over three or four times a year, just wow. for a week, yep. landing in one place. I couldn't tell you much about Bali except for this <laughs> one place. Yep. And um, my understanding of what um, the aspects, the different aspects, the historical, philosophical aspects of yoga are really just um, incredibly um Different. This is a hard question, but what do you sort of integrate from your learnings about sort of the human condition and, you know, how we should act on a daily basis or how how we should think about others? What what are the things that you kind of um, bring with you from that rich tradition um, to your everyday? Um, I think an understanding of how you respond and energy, your your own sense of your body, Um, So really through yoga practice, you really inhabit your body more than you would otherwise. So you feel your muscles, you feel your movement, you feel your sense of um, being really. Um, So and through that it's really a connection to the universal, if you like, um, because we're all bodies. Um, But there is a sense of after having done the physical 
movements for a while and understanding how your body works, you start to move into um, how it feels and move into more meditation type practices or then into things like sound, which is chant. And all of a sudden you realise actually you can move energy around, which we all know because singing and music is actually just notes and energy and we know when we listen to a good soundtrack what that makes you feel like, right? Oh, yeah. It can just shift the your energy from one thing to the other in, in a flash. I was um, in the bathroom the other day as an aside and <laughs> I overheard um, my wife who claims she doesn't sing, singing the Lion King soundtrack <laughs> to Marlo uh, with the music on and I hadn't listened to that in probably a good 10, 15 years when I saw the, the play in London. But I, um, it made me my heart overflow with joy. There you go. And I burst out laughing, uh, <laughs> and I cre- crept into the room just quietly enough to see her singing to Marlo and then having a little yeah, smile beautiful. together. And oh, um, Mike, that's gorgeous. Yeah, you, you've you've really um, got me a bit emotional. But um, you're <laughs> so right, aren't you? Yeah. And uh, that's a, a, another thing that I've realised is we're porous. Yeah, we're not only. I mean, COVID. We're actually porous in our breath. We have about 11,000 litres of breath going through us every day and we breathe out, we breathe other people's breath in. And with COVID that was dangerous but it is. it does actually, we are porous in our, um, you can feel heat coming off your hands, you feel heat coming off another person. We um, sense that energy that happens around music when you see someone else that's joyous, we we absorb. Mm. We absorb and we give out. So I think a, a yogic practice is also that awareness of what you give out and what you take in and how that affects you as a person and how that affects other people you're dealing with. And mm. so what is your practice like today or your routine like? Because you're, you're a very... Um, I, I know you won't mind me saying, well, you might not mind me saying this, but you're a very high-performing person. You do a lot of things that are very important. Um, how do you kind of integrate things, habits and practices to sort of get you to your best each day? Um, oh, every time you ask someone who um, has experienced this, they go, oh, my own practice, God, you know, um, it's faulty at a best. Um, so most days I try and do some form of meditation or breath work and um, uh, even in a limited amount, just that real awareness that what you're doing is really good. Um, so being in the moment and being mindful. And, well, yeah, yeah, just having a look inside rather yep. than just like what you're doing with a 10-week-old baby. Yeah. Um, and I've also got a new dog. So, oh, yeah. What kind of dog? A Labradoodle. Oh, Odie. Have you seen Cyril? No. Oh, he's my mini Labradoodle. He's the um, one of the uh, mascots, <laughs> the mascot of the podcast. I'll have to Seriously? show you afterwards. Uh, yeah. Okay. How good, lab- how good is that cross? Oh, I love him. Phenomenal. I just completely love him. Yeah. So he's now old enough to be walking on a lead. So we're now adventuring. I found somewhere in Glen Waverley the other day, which is a dog's off lead kind of nature reserve. Yep. So, you know, out into nature. So I've got a real calling at the moment um, into nature. Um, and I need to do more of it. So not need but want to do a lot more of it. Mm. And um, so how often do you do yoga? 
depends what form of yoga. If you're talking the asanas, the physical postures, yeah, the physical. I'm I'm not doing it hardly at all yep. at the moment. Yep. That was good English. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must be because we're post five pm, and I've kept you. Is that what's too happened? Long. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, it's been so good chatting with you. I just want to thank you so much for making the time. Mm, How thanks, can people um, connect with you and learn more about your work and the various things you're doing? I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's I don't do Facebook, and I'm at Pro Bono Australia. So kmarlab at probonoaustralia.com.au. Oh, fantastic. Sign well, I up. hope people write to you. Uh, yeah, and thanks, I hope that Mike. people engage. I know they will. Uh, I know that I feel very privileged to have had you here and um, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.